A lot of big news and a lot of decisions made this week in Independent League Baseball, and we're going to break them all down here on the Indie Ball Report podcast. We're back again to talk about everything and anything independent league baseball. And in case you have been keeping tabs on what's happening, it's uh, it's been an exciting past uh, eight days, but only seven since we released the show. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we have a, uh, a good interview this week. Obviously, we have some news coming from everyone's favorite league, the Atlantic League. We have some more news coming out of the American Association. And we obviously have Frontier League news. So it's a it's a hard place to pick where to start. But normally, we like to start with interviews. So I suppose we'll start there with our interview with the Deputy Commissioner of the Frontier League, Steve Talsler. It was a very solid interview. I enjoyed interviewing what? him a lot. Uh, there was a lot of really cool information that came out of that. So I, I definitely want to get to that quickly. But again, uh, we'll do what we do, always do here with interviews, which is kind of preface them a little bit here. So uh, for me, I think as far as the COVID goes, we're all kind of at a standstill. I will admit I should have asked a little bit about the rumors that have been going around between there not being a season and some teams forming their own leagues, other teams going to other leagues for the year. I didn't ask that, so that's on me. But at the same time, there was a lot of other good information, particularly about, uh, I think, the future of the Frontier League. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, specifically in regard to expansion, I thought he gave you a lot. And, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, one site that I've talked about at length on the show that I really think is a, a good future site for uh, an independent league team, particularly Frontier League, in Old Orchard Beach um, and it, you know, he kind of talked about some of the things that I've talked about in terms of tourism and specifically, uh, you know, he made a more specific point of French Canadian tourism, which is already comfortable with the brand and the, you know, the region, um, and all comfortable with the Frontier League, former Can-Am League teams. So it makes a lot of sense to me that he did that. So yeah, I mean, we'll talk about obviously more about that in particular later, but he makes a lot of really interesting points, I think, just about expansion and about what you're going to hear in regards to the future of the frontier league yeah the brand recognition was a huge piece of wanting to go to old orchard beach as you know here in the interview uh we also talked about another market too you know i didn't realize but they were very close to having them in for this year and it just didn't quite materialize so i would imagine they're going to be in either next year if this COVID situation starts to uh, temper down or perhaps yeah. even the, the year after so I'm, I'm very curious. He lays out four major points for expansion, and uh, they all make a lot of sense. It's what you expect here. And it, it'll be interesting to see where they go in regards to that. But yeah, he also he, he lays everything out very methodically. I think it's very easy to follow. It was a very good interview, and there's a lot of information to take away from it. So we'll stop discussing it, and we'll just get right into it. Uh, so here's our interview with the Deputy Commissioner of the Frontier League, Steve Talsler. All right, we're back again, and we have another interview this week. It's an interview I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Uh, you'll best know with his work with the Frontier League. We now welcome to the show the Deputy Commissioner of the Frontier League, Steve Talsler. How's it going today? Uh, it's sunny, and I'm not playing baseball, so I'm glad that it's very sunny, but I'm disappointed I'm not at a ballpark. I mean, I think we all can agree with that sentiment. I mean, it's better than when it's raining, but like you said, if we were at a ballpark, we'd all be a lot happier now. But yep. I think that kind of leads us into the first line of questioning that I got here. 
how soon before we do get back into a ballpark? I have no idea. All right. I mean, other we want to get back, we're ready to get back, but ultimately we can't make that decision. You know, it's got yeah. to go, and it's really it's a three-step process. The first step is the government, you know, the government signing off on reopening for sports facilities in each of our different jurisdictions. Then the second step is the jurisdiction, our teams still need to go through the local health department, submit their, we've already have our plans ready to go, each of our reopening plans. Once they get the clearance from the state government, then they go to the local health department, submit the plan, make any necessary changes. And then once that second point is done, then you get to the point, then you just look at the calendar and say, is it realistic still to try to open and play a 2020 season? Yeah, so then would something like uh, what the American Association announced last week with hub cities, would that possibly be a model that would work? I mean, with something like that, you would probably take a lot of the governmental restrictions if you could just find a handful of markets that would uh, be willing to host several teams. It's an option, but that's not one we're strongly considering. Our preference is to be able to play baseball in as many of our markets as possible. Hmm. And realizing some of those markets might not be able to play regular frontier league baseball, may have to do other activities that have lesser, you know, have lesser fans involved or less travel involved. But our goal still is to play as much baseball as we can in each one of our 14 markets. Yeah, but I imagine, like you said, the governmental restrictions are a big factor. And also, like you mentioned, time, if it's going to be not till August 15th or late August, early September, then it really doesn't leave you as much time, if any, to actually have a season. I'd imagine like July would be when the season would have to start to be making it kind of viable. I mean, internally, our teams are telling us that, you know, it really is going to take four weeks from permission being granted to the first game to get all the logistics worked out. Okay. So then it requires a decent bit of ramp-up time, and I imagine with the Frontier League now including the former Can-Am League markets, it does add a, an extra challenge to it. Obviously, the merger brought a lot of benefits, and we'll definitely discuss that a little bit later on, but to now have teams that are in the Midwest, to the East Coast, and even some in Canada, I imagine that really does add on to uh, a lot of the challenges. It, it, yeah, it does. The more jurisdictions you're in, and the, long, the more states you're in, and now that you've got the border crossing to deal with as well, it does add some, you know, different logistics to it. You know, mm. it's it's worth it because we brought in great markets and great facilities and great operators. We just never had any clue that this was going to pop up and, like I said, put the entire not just the sports world, the entire entertainment world, tourism, hospitality, completely throw it off track. I mean, exactly. I mean, a pandemic like this has been seen in what nearly a hundred years. So, I mean, when it comes up, it obviously takes uh, everyone by surprise here. But on that same note, though, eventually when we do get baseball back, whether it be this year, next year, or any time going forward, what exactly will that kind of ballpark experience look like? I know you mentioned that there are reopening plans attached here, and I imagine we'll see a lot of the kind of standard uh, fare that we've seen, you know, masks, hand sanitizers, obviously social distancing. But I was wondering if you could kind of go into a little bit of detail as to what fans can expect when they walk through the gates of a Frontier League park. We're really leaving that up to the local authorities to de- to direct us what they're comfortable with and that's kind of the biggest thing is the league itself is going to we've got some general things mostly involving the ball players and the umpires and the people that would travel from city to city but in terms of what it's like at the individual ballpark we're going to let each team work with their health department to come up with a plan that the health department is comfortable signing off on and whatever the health department goes you know wants whether 
in terms of spacing, in terms of hand sanitizers, in terms of plexiglass, in terms of restroom access, in terms of certain areas. Like if you can't do, you know, if they don't want us, if they want us open to have fans in the seats, but not in the kids zone because the bounce houses, for example. Each of that will be really on a market by market basis based on what their local health board is comfortable with them doing, knowing the specifics of the number of cases, the transmission, how, you know, the infrastructure on the local level. So we're not going to come out with a standard frontier league plan of you must do this, you must do that. We're going to let the individual health departments design that plan for us. All right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense here because they'll know the region better. And obviously you want to maximize as many people as you can while remaining safe there. So I guess kind of on that note here, uh, I'll kind of ping pong a little bit off of the, the COVID topic here. I mean, we've, I know person on the show, we've discussed this ad nauseum here. And as we start to, uh, or as we keep talking about it, there's only so much more you could say. So I guess uh, now would be a good time to start talking a little bit about the uh, the merger in general. Uh, because I know okay. when I saw that come through, I was very excited about it. And it was something that I had been hearing was in the works for a while. So I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through point from point A to point B on that whole merger. Really, things started, I think it was February of 2018. We were, Billy and I were invited to go to the KM's spring meeting. Mm. And we, you know, we came down there. Obviously, we'd had a professional relationship with the people in the league dating back to when it was the Northeast League in the, you know, finally starting up in the late nineties. We've always had a good professional relationship and open conversations with not just the KM League, but the American Association and the Atlantic League as well. Yeah. So, you know, they invited us to come down to their spring meeting. Bill and I went down and, you know, at that point, you know, the discussion was they were kind of stuck at six clubs. They were looking for different ways to expand their brand and solidify themselves a little bit. We start, you know, we talked about a few different options from joint, you know, from just doing a marketing partnership to on-field play to, you know, a full-blown joining of the two leagues. Uh, They followed up by sending a contingent out to our all-star game in River City in summer 2018, we had some more in-person meetings. We met again probably late August of that year as a second set of meetings. They brought people to our meetings the fall of 2018 in Scottsdale. Uh, probably the biggest thing that came out of that is we agreed we would start with a joint all-star game to give our, t- to give our people the chance to see each other and to give the Frontier League teams to see the Can-Am League operation in action. After they came out to our All-Star game in 2018, and the Can-Am League had not done an All-Star game on its own for a while, they got to see some one of our ballparks. They got to meet some of our ownership groups, meet our general managers that were on you know on site at the event. And we came back, and in 2019, when we were set that up at the end of 2018 to go into 2019 with that All-Star game, we knew that that was going to be a key factor in seeing can we really make something work. Yeah. As we kept, ta- you know, we kept talking, we kept meeting, you know, we had meetings a couple times last spring mm-hmm. leading up to the All-Star game. All-Star game went really well. We got great response on both sides from both the Frontier League and the Can-Am League in our individual markets. Had, you know, that's really when we got to that point, we realized that it made more sense for us to figure something out as a group than to try, you know, yeah. that it would really work. And that's when, you know, we left that meeting, like I've said before, we left that meeting in Rockland County, New York, 80% of the deal was done. And the 20% that wasn't was just relatively minor logistical issues that you wanted to work out before you make an official announcement. 
But we, you know, the Frontier League left Rockland, New York thinking, you know, yeah, these are people we want to work with. We have the same big picture, long-term goal for both leagues, and it makes sense to tie them together in some fashion. Personally, I was there at that All-Star game, and it definitely, there was an atmosphere around that game that I hadn't seen in a while. I mean, obviously, I frequent Can-Am games, or when I when they did exist, I frequent them quite often, but that game specifically did have that kind of atmosphere, and I definitely see how that kind of a partnership has benefited, uh, certainly the Frontier League and also the those six Can-Am League teams. So I'm just kind of curious if there's been any sort of, obviously it's only been a handful of months here, but if there's been any sort of difficulty kind of uh, blending the two leagues together into one entity. Really, no, there hasn't been. It's gone incredibly smoothly. We were we were on the same page in pretty much all the big picture issues, and that was the key. And we both decided we were not going to let the relatively minor issues get, you know, yeah. stop an agreement that was going to be beneficial for both people. So, you know, we agreed that the Can-Am League teams would be joining the Frontier League. They were technically, they were extended invitations. They joined the Frontier League. The term we used is they merged into the Frontier League. Yeah. But then once they became members of the Frontier League, they would be full-blown members and have the same rights as any other member in the Frontier League. And then at that point, we would discern that's when we would determine if we we're going to adjust any of the playing rules or the regulations to try and take the Frontier League model and the Can-Am League model and see if there was a fit in the middle that would meet both of our objectives in the first few years until we had a better idea how things would go for in the future. And I, and I imagine one of those kind of uh, adaptations from the Can-Am League was the additional uh, veteran slots there. Correct, yes, especially with the teams in Quebec and Three Rivers. Uh, because they that's where really it's most important because of the Canadian baseball and the number of named players they were able to get to keep playing because it, you know, there are less opportunities for Canadians to play than there are uh, you know American citizens to play and that's really what what the main factor was is doing the vet more veteran players was allow those Canadian teams to keep their named players who were local to the area because it's much more difficult to find a uh, player from Quebec than it is to find a player in St. Louis. I met, that brings up another question that just kind of came to my mind, which is I imagine it's much more difficult marketing baseball in a Quebec, in a Three Rivers, than it is in, uh, than obviously in New Jersey. So I'm wondering, outside of just the name players that fans recognize, if there's any other efforts or what other efforts, rather, that are kind of used to market the game to an audience that probably is somewhat familiar with it, but not nearly as uh, ingrained culturally with it. Quebec has had baseball dating back to the 30s. Yeah. And, you know, the stadium they use, the stadiums they use in both Quebec and Square Rivers are virtually identical and they opened, I think, in 1937 and 1938. Uh, you know, Quebec especially has the much longer baseball history. The Three Rivers did have a team in the Eastern League, a double A team for a few years in the mid 70s when Quebec had a double A team in the Eastern League as well. Mm. So that, you know, they've got the baseball tradition, especially with Quebec City. Still saw, when I was up there in the fall, still saw some Montreal Expos memorabilia. They were very proud of, you know, having the Expos and would like to be able to at some point get Major League Baseball back in the province. Hmm. But they actually do have a strong, they do have a very strong baseball culture up there. And both those teams have very solid followings as well. That's a little, that's, I don't want to say it's surprising because it certainly, it shouldn't be, obviously, like you said, with the history of it, but it, it's not exactly the the first thing that comes to mind when you think of uh, minor league baseball in general. You wouldn't think uh, Canadian markets, but I, I suppose I'm wrong on that front. But so then, 
I'll uh, I'll kind of shift a little bit while maintaining on the same topic here, which is it was it's no real surprise that or not that much surprising that uh, expansion is something that gets tossed around a lot, especially in conjunction with the Frontier League. And obviously now with the pandemic, I imagine those plans have been uh, tempered. But I am curious to know what in your mind was the definition of a Frontier League market? What what goes into having a successful team in a in a successful city for the Frontier League? You really have four different things you need to, we need to examine to determine if a club is going to be a long-term success in the Frontier League. Mm. Uh, the first one is the market size. Uh, you know, m- the market in terms of the population base, the corporate advertising base, what competition you have in the market. And we've had great success in metropolitan markets where we're just outside of Cincinnati and Cleveland mm. and Pittsburgh and St. Louis. But we've also had great success in your more traditional markets like in Marion, Illinois, or in Evansville, Indiana. Mm. So, you know, just just pure population isn't going to say yes or no, but you've got to look at the other factors as well in terms of what the competition is. If you've got a smaller population base, but you're your own media market as Evansville and Marion are, that overwhelm, you know, that makes a big shift in terms of not having the million plus people that a Windy City team can draw from. Yeah. The second one is in, you know, one of the big keys is, is there a suitable facility? You know, you've got to have a facility that can attract the fans, the number of fans that we need to make it work worthwhile from a business standpoint, you know, three to 4,000 capacity with the suites in the berm areas and the entertainment options that people expect from professional baseball and minor league baseball these days. The third one is having a committed ownership group that Mm -hmm. understands what they're getting into and understands it's a long-term investment. And it's not the type of business you're going to be successful if you acquire a team with the goal of flipping it after a year. Yeah. You know, our successful teams have a five to 10 year long term picture and that's how they view aspects. And then the fourth thing is who's the day to day management that are going to be responsible for implementing all of the details of the operation and, you know, ultimately the point of contact for all the fans. So it's those four items that we look at as a group to determine if a market and if a situation is a good fit for us. Yeah. And so it more or less goes into just from what I gather here is that there, there's a group of people that want to have baseball in their area. And then there's a quality facility and a quality ownership group that puts the right people into place. Exactly. And then you also have to hire the right staff to manage it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So then would, I know before the merger happened, we heard rumors of Old Orchard Beach looking into getting a team and obviously Ottawa always exists. They were in the Can-Am last year and then didn't make the jump this year. And then there's been rumors swirling around and I, I don't expect you to name names on that, but would markets like that be something of interest? Uh, you know, definitely Ottawa was, we were ready to go forward with Ottawa involved. Uh, it was just a situation where the lease had expired and a new lease had not been signed yet. And we reached the point where we needed to make a schedule and make an announcement. Yeah. You know, so Ottawa is definitely an interesting and attractive market. We are still having conversations there. Yeah. The, you know, the only, really the holdup was there was no one that had a lease, had access. The yeah. people that were interested didn't have access to the ballpark in terms of a signed lease. And without a lease, you can't yeah, play a ballpark. Yeah. You know, Old Orchard Beach is, you know, it's interesting. It's a different, you know, it's a different market because it's a, it's so close to Portland, Maine. And it's not a large year-round population base, but it is a huge tourism base. Hmm. And especially, it's a big tourism base for the French Canadians in the Montreal and Quebec area. Yeah. In terms of you know what they what we were told by our 
contacts by our ownership groups in Quebec is the people in Quebec, when they want to go to the beach, Old Orchard Beach is the resort town they go to for the summer vacation. Hmm. So you get a lot of influx of Canadian tourists going to the Old Orchard Beach area because it's the closest real beach that there is to Quebec. So that's one of the areas that makes, you know, makes that attractive is even though you don't have the large, you don't have anywhere close to the population base that a regular team to do throughout the year, you get that mass influx that's people that are already familiar with the Quebec Crapitals and the, you know, the Eagle of the Three Rivers coming into town that give them an, you know, built an advantage. That's one of the things that made Orchard Beach attractive first to the KM League and then when those clubs joined us, make them attractive as we're looking at a different options. Yeah, I mean, obviously having a solid brand identity is something that's uh, very important there. And I imagine that there's a handful of other marks that you're looking at that none of us have an inkling yet at or there isn't enough out on. So I suppose I'll leave the expansion talk there, too. Plus, with the COVID pressing, that's a whole nother ball of wax, too. That complicates things as well. And uh, with, yeah. with that, I'm just going to kind of talk a little generally about the the history of the Frontier League, obviously starting in 1993, they've been pretty much the stalwart league. I believe they're now the oldest remaining league in uh, independent league baseball. So I'm right. just kind of curious to know what goes into that kind of success. We've, we've obviously discussed about what makes a good market, what makes a good ownership group, what's necessary for, you know, success of a team and everything like that. But just how do you maintain the success of a league in what, four decades now? Uh, exactly. You know, ultimately, it's the people involved. It's yep. having dedicated people, not just team employees, but dedicated fan bases, dedicating dedicated governments, dedicated seasonal workers, people that are just you know excited by and enjoy and believe in the product is what a lot has allowed us to succeed for twenty seven plus years now. And you mean you guys obviously skew a little bit long, younger compared to some other leagues? I imagine that also a sort of an element you get to see guys that were more single double a type players that now are getting that opportunity to continue to live their dream and you've had a, a very large amount of players that have managed to go from the frontier league into major league baseball or back into major league baseball as well oh uh, yeah we haven't you know that's kind of the niche we established mm-hmm. at the beginning when we first formed we established as the, the niche for the younger ball player who either got overlooked in the mlb draft or only had a short amount of time in an organization and was looking to showcase himself to the 29 other teams that had bypassed on him, or 29 other teams that did not sign him to begin with because he was chosen by the draft by the 30th. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of the, the market angle we've been able to capture and have been able to promote and work with on the baseball player side. And, you know, very happy with the way, with the way that's worked out for us. We've got our niche and we like our niche and, you know, we hope to, you know, hope to keep being able to go forward with it once the conditions allow us to take the field again. Yep. And so I know you're very busy and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So with that, I'm just going to, I guess, got two more questions for you uh, before you go. And the first thing is for fans of teams in Can-Am League markets, what can they now expect to see from the Frontier League? Fans that aren't used to Frontier League baseball, what are going to be some of the, the positives, the differences that they're going to go, I really enjoy this. What can they expect to see out of Frontier League Baseball whenever they manage to take the field again? I mean, honestly, from the fans' perspective, you're not going to see a lot of difference. We've got, you know, the things that are used to, you're still going to have the mascots, you're still going to have the in-game promotions, you're still going to have fireworks, you're still going to have 
you know, the good, the different food offerings in the group, the ability to do group outings, you know, some general fan perspective, you're going to see the same thing you had seen. You're just going to be able to see a new batch of clubs and new batch of markets coming in. And as you follow the team, the people that follow the team when they're out of town are going to be able to see them playing in different geographic regions and different stadiums. Okay. And then uh, just the one final thing I have, because I know when the merger first went down and there was one issue that came up in my mind, which we're still, I think, at a bypass at, which is now we have a league that has two teams with the same name. So yep. which of those which of those teams is the true miners? Is it Southern Illinois or is it Sussex County? Well, whoever wins more games when they go head to head. That's the that's the best answer you could give there. So with that said, I'm going to give you the floor now to say anything you want to say. Uh, if we, we didn't cover a uh, a topic that you wanted to get to, if there's anything you want to summarize, anything really at all you want to say, uh, now's the time to do that. I mean, I guess the biggest message to to the people listening to our players and to our fan base is. We want to play baseball, but at the same point, we know we're not going to, we know we need to do it when it's safe and when the, the health departments and the government say that it's safe to have, to be able to have people together in a group setting. So we're, you know, we're working on it. We speak weekly with our, with our ownership groups. We speak weekly with our general managers to give them an update. We speak weekly with the Atlantic League and the American Association offices on a joint call, just trying to plan and figure out what's going on where see see the different geographic reasons when we think what's going to open up compare notes uh you know we were aware of the Atlanta, the american association pod plan when they first came up to it they presented to, to us of here here's something we're looking at don't know if it would fit your model but you know when we were in states like north dakota and south dakota that have much smaller caseloads than mm. in illinois or in ohio have you know it worked for them so we've been having ongoing communications. We're doing whatever we can. We definitely want to play in 2020, but we also realize ultimately that's not going to be our decision. You know, that it's yeah. going to be up to the governments and up to the health departments to make sure that when we do play, if we play, when we play, that we do so in a manner that's safe for everybody involved, from the employees to the fans, to the ball players, uh, to the, you know, to the community as a general. So our goal is to play. We're doing whatever we're doing and we can. But we're also being respectful that, you know, ultimately baseball is a real minor part of this entire situation going on. And it's not for, for us to divert, to divert resources from more pressing people and more pressing, uh, at risk population bases just to be able to take care of some ball players. All right. Well said. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. I do appreciate you taking out, taking the time out of your day, uh, with such busy, busy times and pressing issues on there. I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, and again, I just want to thank Steve for coming on the show. I do appreciate him taking the time out of his day. It's obviously a very hectic day, and as we found out uh, a little bit later on, I think it was either the following day or later in the same day, uh, in regards to what's happening with the Canadian teams this year, it was clearly a, a busy day for him, too. So uh, I do appreciate the taking the about 25 minutes or so uh, to do the interview. So that's greatly appreciated. And again, as with every one of our guests, uh, they're always welcome back on the show whenever they'd like. But uh, with, with that said, I think we should probably start at the beginning and work our way through this whole interview. The three-step process he outlined for reopening the uh, the league in general, it makes a lot of sense. It's basically what we've heard from just about everyone from every one of these leagues in regards mm-hmm. to what needs to go into reopening, which is state approval, local approval, and then 
when are we going to be able to actually start? I mean, he said it's going to be uh, four weeks of lead time. It's going to take us a month from when we say we can play games to actually playing those games. So you have to imagine we're going to get an answer, I'd imagine, on Monday. On Monday's like the day in my mind from what I've heard with rumors and various things that announcements are either going to come yesterday, meaning Friday, or on Monday or at least at the very latest, the beginning part of next week, because if you think oh, yeah. about it, it's going to be end of July by the time they get games going again. So I, I can't imagine that they have much more time to spare on this issue. I think they kind of have, they're kind of at the precipice now. They got to make a, they got to make a decision one way or the other. Yeah, the backs against the wall a little bit here. And, you know, obviously there are some teams, I think, that if they don't wind up playing, you'll see what we've seen already with Sugarland and other places where they just do their own league, um, which is an interesting type of setup, uh, not one that I think a lot of fans are super excited to see. But, hey, it is some some baseball. So even if there is no Frontier League season, I do think that a lot of teams will try to stay afloat by doing their own stuff uh, if they can. Mm, yeah, I mean, we saw yesterday with the announcement from the Atlantic League that obviously their teams are going to be doing other things at their ballpark. Uh, I believe Somerset's setting up some sort of uh, summer league too. I saw that right before we went on to record on their Twitter that they're doing a player tryout next Saturday. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more and all those other leagues a little bit more in the show later on. But they'll definitely they'll try. These ballparks will have something going on. There are fixtures in a community, so they're going to host community events. But yep. yeah, at, at this point, they need to make that call. And if for nothing else, just for the players and the coaches to know what, what's actually yeah. happening. Uh, he did mention uh, that they're in contact with the GMs, with other leagues on a weekly basis here. So there is good communication going on. But at this point, still, it's hard to relate all this message, all these messages to all the players and the coaches. Uh, they We just need an answer one way or the other. So that way they can determine what they're going to be doing. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think you, they really need to you know, get the let out a little bit here. Obviously, the Atlantic League made their decision. The American Association made their decision. Uh, and they've kind of figured out a way to get some teams playing anyway. And so I think it's time for the Frontier League to make their decision and either get some teams playing or allow teams to figure out ways to generate revenue that aren't uh, Frontier League baseball at this point. Exactly. And I mean, with that, I mean, there's not much else really that can be said. There needs to be a decision one way or the other. We know each team's going to be kind of responsible for their own stadium, their own precautions like that, just because, as you heard in the interview, there are so many different uh, health administrations, so many different regions of the country that have so many different uh, ways of handling this outbreak. Obviously, if you're in uh, one of the newer hotspot areas, like I think Ohio's starting to pick up then you're going to handle it a lot different from New Jersey that's been pretty stagnant as of recent. We haven't really gone too sky high. I mean, maybe it's because of the way we're reopening, how we're kind of doing it slowly. Maybe it's just because of whatever reason. Maybe it's kind of burned itself out and ran out of people to infect around here. Who really knows? But either way, yeah. it's going to be just, it's a lot different from a New Jersey or Rockland to a Lake Erie or Florence, you know? I mean, around here, the, the numbers are low and have been low uh, going on, you know, last couple of months, really May and June have been quite low in terms and continuing to go down for the most part, um, you know, some day to day fluctuation. But as an overall trend, I think, you know, we're really continuing to be on the decline, which is something that, uh, you know, we can attribute to a thousand different things, maybe just because we already had 
you know, our peak of 4,000 cases a day back in or whatever it was, March and April. So, I mean, obviously there's been a lot going on here that seems to be in a better trending in a better direction than maybe some other places in the country that are seeing second hotspots or really only their first hotspot. I think it'll be interesting to see what the, uh, Frontier League can kind of whip up here and, you know, what the different, uh, hotspots in different places can figure out. Yeah, no, it's going to be very interesting to see how that works itself out. Uh, I think with that, we'll just kind of ramp up all the COVID talk and just talk a little bit about uh, some of the some of the rumors I'm hearing a little bit back and forth here. And keep in mind, they're just rumors. Uh, I do trust where they're coming from, but at the same time, I've only heard it from one source. I haven't heard it from two yet. But uh, the general consensus I'm hearing is that between three to five, and we know it'll be three to five, uh, teams are going to join into the Atlantic League for this year at the very least to right. play some games against them. Uh, but more than that, though, it's the rumor going around is that it's going to be three teams from the Frontier League. And it'll be, I mean, you can kind of figure out which three it's going to be. It's the three that are kind of the most central to where the Atlantic League operates. So you could kind of piece it together there. Although supposedly there's there could be another two. Uh, I'm not really sure if I buy into that so much. There's reasons... There's a lot of reasons to believe it. Uh, I'll say that much. There's a, there's an awful lot to believe there. It makes a lot yep. of sense. And I imagine on Monday, uh, when we get our ruling either way, and I'm just saying Monday as a date where I think it makes a lot of sense to call it on Monday as opposed to doing it on Monday as opposed to waiting longer. But uh, either way, I think on Monday we're going to have our, our decision one way or the other. And I'll be interested yeah. to see there because, I mean, it, it'd be funny to see if there was New Jersey teams playing against Atlantic League teams, but yet Somerset didn't. And I it would I'd have a lot of questions if that were the case. I would too. I would too. Especially because I mean, I don't know what New Jersey seems to be reopening at a, a decent pace to allow for something like that. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not sure if it's entirely hundred percent possible at this moment in time, but it seems to be trending toward the having the ability to do so so i was really actually puzzled in many ways why the decision that um why the decision was made by somerset to go in the direction they did in terms of not keeping specific uh not playing this season i think it it really wasn't a a smart choice at this point you know it's a perplexing choice not maybe a smart one but not a you know kind of a questionable choice for them to say no to the entire uh you know Atlantic League season as a result of this i think it's something that would be you know very difficult to kind of parse out and and figure out here because if new jersey is opening in this way and then you have sussex county and or uh the new jersey jackals in there it's going to be it's going to lead to a lot of questions from a lot of people yeah i just i don't ever understood that i mean you would assume that you you could uh better socially distance at a Somerset ballpark than the other two. Likewise, yeah. you already have them in the league. You already have players signed. It just seems more efficient there. Now, I imagine uh, Somerset will either, I imagine with the Atlantic League, and we'll obviously talk more about them in a second, uh, but they'll figure out a way to take the players off the rosters of the three teams not playing and keep them in the Atlantic League. Or maybe if these teams are planning on uh, forming their own leagues, maybe they'll still honor those contracts to those teams, but who knows there. But yeah, no, with those, with the rumors I'm hearing, you're going to have three teams. And like I said, you could kind of figure out those three without directly saying those three. That, yeah, I mean, I mean it's right. pretty obvious what it is. I'm not going to say it. Uh, people haven't wanted me. The people I'm hearing from don't want me to say it. So I'm not going sure, to. But, I, I, yeah. Of course. I mean, I'm just... Yeah, we're just spitballing that, you know, 
you know no, where it would be. no information to to either either way it's just if that were to occur yeah if, again i have no information to suggest that it would but if it were to occur it would raise some questions about uh somerset and what's going on over there in bridgewater a little bit at least uh just because of how we are in the tri-state area and things do seem to be opening up and even in pennsylvania for some Pennsylvania teams, I think it would be interesting if, uh, you know, they play and then teams in the tri-state didn't play. So if Pennsylvania teams were selected, but teams in New Jersey and New York wouldn't, with New Jersey and New York seemingly having a lower rate of infection at this point uh, than Pennsylvania does, uh, that also, you know, leads to some questions if none of the New Jersey teams uh, end up, and New York teams end up playing uh, other than Long Island. So there are definitely a lot of questions to be had on that front. Exactly. That that's going to be a whole ball of wax to figure out here. But just going to go back now to the actual interview itself here, where you, yeah. the only thing that the league really said was going to mandate in regards to COVID, and I'll wrap up the COVID talk for for the time being now. I uh, was just saying we're going to manage the players and the umpires. Really, uh, that that's all we really are going to put restrictions down for our guidelines down for everybody else uh they know their situation better than we do so we'll uh, we'll hope that they know what they're doing there but uh, yeah. the more interesting thing and honestly the the section that i found the most interesting was to talk about the merger how yep. they met four times in 2018 it started in the spring of 18 and uh it really came together at the all-star game now we knew that it already kind of come together there we knew it was like 80 percent done at that all-star game but to just see how much each side was really working towards this merger was something that was really interesting to me. Yeah, it was really interesting. And especially because he says after the all-star game, eh, they had 80% done. I mean, that's incredible, right? To think that when we were sitting there, I mean, you know, there were inklings, there were talk, there was, there was some things, but I mean, it was never uh, something that was really floated out to fans and even to us for uh, able to get a hold of in any tangible way. So it was interesting to know that they not only were in these discussions, but were really pretty much done for the most part with all the heavy lifting of these discussions by the time that the All-Star game was over last summer. So very, very interesting uh, perspective there that I really think, like you said, adds a, a wrinkle to how we view uh, the relationship between the, the former Can-Am and now the, the Frontier League. Um, it really changes the way that we viewed it. You know, obviously, the two leagues were very close and certainly had a good working relationship, but uh, it, it does make sense given the atmosphere, as you talked about in the interview. I think it was a really astute comment that, in, you know, in that moment, you could feel like, wow, there's a lot of Frontier League fans here. You know, there's a lot of fans that traveled well to this uh, All-Star game. So I think it really makes a lot of sense that they wound up merging it. And like you said, it does really add a new uh, way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, really, when, when I know at the end of the interview, I mentioned, like, what can you expect to see different here? And it's like, look, it's basically going to be the same product. So it's going to be the same, like, the same quality baseball, just different faces. Uh, it, that's something that is incredible to add on there. You're going to get this variety that a lot of these Can-Am markets really haven't seen in a long time. I mean, we're used to yeah. the same five teams rotating through here, and it's it just never really could work like that i mean it always felt odd that you had two-thirds of the league making the postseason and while yeah some years some people some teams deserved it it always felt like uh, at least only go with three at least make two give one person a buy 
I mean, it was always weird when you had a team that finished sub 500 in the postseason. It just never worked there. And I found it was very interesting that before the full on merger was discussed, they were saying, look, we could just do a marketing partnership. We could just play some uh, interleague games where you play some of our guys. We play some of your guys, something like that. But how at the end of the day, like, look, the full on merger makes the most sense. And that was just the whole process behind it was something that was very interesting to me. And how it seems like the only issues are small, little, minor ones. That so far, everything's been very smooth. Everyone kind of is on the same page. Everyone just kind of, they have the same objective at the end of the day. And just to make those kind of concessions back and forth to say, okay, we're going to join the league. All right, we'll amend our, our kind of roster rules a little bit here to kind of help you guys out here. And I thought when he started talking about the, when Steve started talking about the Canadian markets, was something that was very interesting to me personally. Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting talking about the Canadian markets and, and also what was, was, was very interesting. And I think it kind of echoes your point is that, you know, he's talking about kind of how not only the product isn't going to change, but it's going to, like you said, for, for the Can-Am League, this is a huge jump in terms of being able to see all these new teams come in. And for fans, it's going to be a real treat. Um, and even for the Frontier League, this is a huge get to not have to get these teams in, right, from the Can-Am League and to not have the quality of play drop off at all. So the expansion is there and the quality of play is still the same. The quality of organization is still the same. I would say even the quality of an organization like the Sussex County Miners and the New Jersey Jackals is on par or even a little bit higher than some of the Frontier League, the original Frontier League teams, um, which I think is really, you know, something that's very interesting, you know, maybe not in terms of attendance and things, but certainly just in terms of organizational structure. There's a lot of really good organizations in that are coming into the Can-Am League, uh, Quebec, obviously, um, and others that, you know, really have a nice history. So it's, it was a great boost for both leagues. And I, I think, you know, to kind of tie back into the point I think you're about to make, that those French teams really did, uh, you know, add something. And he highlighted that, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, we talked to numerous people on this show. And every time that they mentioned what it's like up going to Canada to play baseball, they keep talking about the atmosphere of Quebec, how it's playing in the province is just a, such a unique experience and it's just so much fun there. And, you know, the more I think it through, the more it makes sense that, oh, yeah, baseball in Quebec would really be exciting, especially like a minor league baseball. Uh, and the interview, I was a bit surprised at it, but at the same time, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, nearly three, four days later after thinking about it, I was like, you know what? It, it does make sense that you have a, a lower bar to getting into a game. It's cheaper. You don't have to go into a major city like Montreal. You have uh, smaller stadiums that will create more of an intimate type of setting, more of a, a family friendly kind of setting. And you still do have, as Steve mentioned in the interview, you still see people walking around with the Expos hats and the Expos shirts and everything. So there still is very much a love in the province for it. And and the history of baseball that exists is still very present there. And uh, that makes me almost believe that I I could see another team or two going into Quebec if they still want to keep up with those six, uh, those six expansion, especially like you said, when I brought up Ottawa. I said, we wanted Ottawa. We were ready to accept Ottawa. They just, the group that was going to have the team couldn't access the stadium because they didn't have the lease. So we couldn't bring them in because we just ran out of time, which makes me believe that if the current leaseholder or the current uh, ownership group, I believe that's uh, the group that's led by the Winnipeg ownership group, 
mm-hmm. is going to bring a team in there. If they can get that done for next year, they'll be all ready to go, signed, sealed, and delivered. And yeah, you know, I almost wonder if you could, if you, if your goal is almost to go more heavily into Canada and go into like that New England type region and almost divvy it off there. Because I mean, if you're going to go from 14 to 20, realistically, you could go four divisions of five. And make it more yeah. like an actual MLB type structure, or at least something yeah. that MLB's used in the past, which I think would honestly work better than you take, you know, your two division winners. If you really wanted to, to add on even more baseball to the end of the year, you could go with wild cards. Now, I imagine that's not something they're terribly interested in just because when the season wraps up, you have kids going back to school, you have people, yep. you know, they just finished all their fun time in the summer. So now they're like, okay, well, I can't really afford to uh, to slack off anymore. I need to actually focus on doing my job and whatnot again. So it just makes it a lot more difficult. So I imagine it'll just be your division winners. They play each other, and then the winners from each half go on. So basically the same structure they have now, just adding a little bit extra to it. But I think it would be something fun. I would like to see, you know, maybe five teams in Canada or maybe go with like an Ottawa uh, three teams in Quebec and then a team in Old Orchard Beach, something like that. Maybe I, I, I'd be very interested to see something like that. Yeah, that would be really interesting. And I think, um, you know, he makes a great point about, you know, the history and, uh, and, you know, just the, the potential relationship between Canadian baseball and American independent baseball, which really seems to have, uh, you know, a bright future, obviously a, a very interesting past, but a bright future. Um, since as he's talking about it, you know, you have these fans that uh, know this brand, they're interested in this, obviously Quebec, um, the capitals are just really a class organization that have been that were, you know, for many years, the, uh, kind of cream of the crop in the, American, uh, excuse me, in the uh, Can-Am League. And and so, you know, obviously you have these Can-Am League teams that were really, you know, obviously Quebec was the top and then Ottawa was always kind of, you know, a newer team, this incarnation of them. Yeah, uh, Ottawa's always yeah. just had that consistency issue of, you know, one team's here for two years and another team's here for one year. I mean, the, yeah. the champs had the best success. I mean, they won one championship. I mean, they didn't have much winning, but they were there for five years, so that's the most success out of all of them. Yeah, I mean, it's the most success. Obviously, they think there's something there in that market. Um, I agree to an extent, um, but I do think New England is largely, um, you know, undervalued. I think there's a couple of locations, Orchard Beach being one of them, and then, of course, um, we've talked about many times, and we'll see uh, what happens, but something in that Pawtucket, Providence area could actually wind up working out well. Obviously, maybe not so much if something else goes in there. The point I'm making is I think the New England region really is, you know, has a love for baseball. Obviously, the Cape Cod League is big, and it's a different market, but still a market that's in there, but I think there's a lot of tradition and culture um, in that New England baseball market that is untapped and particularly coming out of something like COVID-19. If we are really, you know, there's, there's going to be certainly some economic hard times, I think, and a cheaper option for baseball, a cheaper alternative for a live sports. People can get outside and gather in mass could be something that winds up being a very favorable and positive experience for families and just for people wanting to, to get out and experience something again once all of this lifts, whether that be 2021, 2022, and we go back to some sort of uh, normal lifestyles. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think what really does present the opportunity here 
is with what Major League Baseball seemingly having a hard time at coming to an agreement on where one day they'll have an agreement in principle and then their two sides can be further apart the next day and they just seem to not be able to get their act together. And I mean, if we're, if we're seeing this kind of trouble for now, just a shortened COVID season in 2022 when their CBA's up, it's going to be a fight, to, uh, just a fight through hell to get any sort right. of deal agreed to. So. You could see the same thing that happened last time, like in 94. You see indie ball spike up again because people just don't, they don't care about the back and forth there. They don't care to see millionaires fighting with billionaires. You know, it's, yep. they just want to see baseball play. That's all they care about. Now, granted, I, you know, at an affordable price. <laughs> exactly. So if you can present them with minor league baseball, which keep in mind, major league baseball is cutting a lot of those markets. So you'll probably see a lot of teams move into those markets, at least indie ball wise. Yeah. You could definitely see that kind of resurgence. And obviously with New England, there is the challenge of you have these, coll- these collegiate leagues. You mentioned the Cape Cod league, but there's also uh, the future collegiate league. I believe there's also a New York state league one too. That makes things more difficult once you start to get up around there. So I, there are markets, though, that are there. You mentioned Pawtucket, Old Orchard Beach. I'm sure there's one or two in Connecticut that could make a lot of sense, especially if I think Norwich was on the chopping block, too, I saw a while back. Maybe they've been saved. Maybe they haven't been. But Norwich would definitely be a market I'd like to add if I was a Frontier League or a similar league. There's a lot of there's a lot of options that you could really see this boom with. And I, I'm very curious to see how it goes over the next two years. Because like you said, coming out of the of the COVID pandemic here, obviously this year is going to be really touch and go for everybody. Yeah, nobody's going to come out of this all well to do. It's going to be real rough. Next year, you're going to not really see normal baseball in the sense where it's like it was in 2019. You're still going to see restrictions. Uh, it probably won't be as nearly as bad. Uh, obviously, it depends on when a second wave comes through and how bad it hits. Obviously, there's a lot of facts that go into that, and if or if there's a vaccine or not, also factors in heavily to this too. But, but yeah, no, it it will be very interesting to see there because come 2022, everything should be back to normal the way it was in 2019, barring some sort oh, yeah. of major development here. So if you're going to have Major League Baseball on strike, or you're going to have the game just so altered beyond recognition that a lot of traditionalists or purists just are disgusted at it or you're going to see MILB teams cut left and right. Well, Indie Ball is certainly there. It's going to be baseball that you're used to. It doesn't have anything really that crazy here. I mean, what's the craziest thing? The Atlantic League's rule deal? I mean, yeah, I'd say that it. if you see a Frontier League game, the craziest thing is just the standard minor league rule about extra innings start with a runner on second. That's about it. Yeah, about it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, and, and the other thing that I, I think, that could really help them is yes, the CBA is a huge point. I mean, I think you could see that 1994 effect really take place just because of all of the, you know, it seems to be, everything seems to be snowballing in a way that independent league baseball is really, for the teams that can get through this hard time, really, you know, they're, you know, he was talking about how the, the best teams, the best ownership groups have five and 10 year plans, not two year plans or one year plan. And I think the five-year outlook for independent league baseball is quite good. Um, obviously, my predictions are usually not that great, so I won't prognosticate too much. But what I will say is that I, if I'm, you know, if I was someone looking into to buy into an indie ball team right now, um, this would be the time to 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 buy low because 
I think in the next few years, there's certainly a possibility uh, that indie, indie ball will, will get some kind of a resurgence. And I mean, it's been going good for, for, you know, steady for a few years now, but the, the, the numbers had been declining and things like that. But I think the shot in the arm of wanting to get back in 2022, you could really see a couple of things merging together. The shot in the arm of wanting to get back to normal from some people. And then, of course, um, the shot in the arm of not having Major League Baseball being played, the possibility of that uh, could really make people do that. And then again, you know, maybe not being totally financially recovered from the COVID, uh, you know, recession. Um, and so could make people again look for those more you know a little bit less expensive you know a 14 dollar ticket to to go see the sussex county miners is a heck of a lot cheaper than an 150 dollar ticket to go sit in the bleachers in yankee stadium you know exactly and it's much easier for a lot of people to go to sussex than it is to go to the bronx it's oh, just, yeah it's just the way that is and yeah there's going to be a lot of forces all coming together and it really just comes down to if you can survive the next I'd say 18 months, then you're fine. You should be good. Yeah. Now, obviously, again, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but, uh, you know, oh, it'll yeah. be very, it'll be very interesting to see how everything turns out there. So, uh, with that said, I think we've just about touched on everything in the interview. Uh, you mentioned what goes into being a, uh, successful league and it's just the dedication from a lot of people. And you do see that really on every level that you've, you see the success and how it works. And uh, if it's been around since 1993, you survived the 90s, you survived the 2000s, you survived the 20 teens, and now you're into the 2020s. I mean, you're in your fourth decade of operation now. That speaks for itself. So it, yeah. it'll be very, it'll be very interesting to see where in the Frontier League goes from here. Yeah. The only other thing is I'm surprised he didn't come down one way or the other. I wanted to know is it still, is it Southern Illinois or Sussex? That's the real miners. Oh, I know. I'm surprised he, he didn't get those non-answer. <laughs> exactly. That was a cop-out answer, and I didn't like that. But, <laughs> I mean, like, come on. We need something definitive here. It's not like they're going to be able to play each other this year, or that's <laughs> doubtful that's going to happen. But that's right. More than likely, that, that series ain't going to happen, I mean, especially with the uh, reduced travel. That's definitely going to be in effect, regardless of whether or not they play. So we're going to have to wait till 2021 to get an answer. Uh, I know, it's, it's very difficult. It can uh, be very difficult. And we're not even going to get a real answer until they meet in a championship series. At that point, then we'll have an answer. Then we'll finally get an answer. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think for cheap PR, they should put the name up for grabs. I think so, too. No, they shouldn't do that. No, uh, do that. <laughs> make it like the championship belt. The winner gets to keep it, and then they'll just alternate as they win. <laughs> have them play for like a pickaxe or something. Oh, there you go. I like that. The, yeah. the, the minor trophy. I like that. That yeah, sounds good. Exactly. Make it like uh, in college football. Have you have uh, all those different things, you know, like the victory bell and whatnot, tiger rag, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You have all those rivalries and whatnot. I think that could be fun. It'd be a fun little thing to do. You have a little ceremony at the uh, end of the season long series. Have them play like maybe a four game set against each other, home and away type thing. Alternate who's home and who's away. Uh, to end that series every other year. I think it could be a fun little thing to do, have a trophy presentation or whatever, you know, it'd be fun. But 
But yeah, hey, I think it'd be a lot fun. I think it's one of those things that adds tradition and you know could really add some interest to those kind of games, and it'll be fun for players and coaches too. So yeah, that'll be fun. And I think um, those type of things will be really key, in my opinion, at least to to making this new frontier thing, as he talked about in the interview, really even gel a little bit more. Even though he said it has gone smooth, which I I was interested to hear about that because you know as much as uh, those two leagues are so similar, were so similar, excuse me, uh, the Can-Am League and the Frontier, they were so similar. You know, uh, you could see how there might be a little bit of a friction, a little bit of rubbing there, but they really did a, a nice job, uh, as, as he says, in kind of getting everything to gel together cohesively. So, I mean, really interesting to see once we start playing some games here, though. 100% there. So, uh, again, I thank Steve for coming on the show. I do appreciate his time. And, again, he's always welcome on the program there. So uh, before we switch over to the Atlantic League talk, uh, just one thing of real note here, uh, that Quebec and Three Rivers, they are not playing in the Frontier League this year. Uh, this was something that they had an emergency meeting for on Wednesday. I believe it was then announced on uh, Friday or Thursday. I can't recall at the present moment in time. I think it was Thursday that it was announced that... Uh, they're not playing. The border's just too tough to navigate. They're going to try to play some games against each other using Canadian players. So that'll be interesting to see if that happens. Uh, they did say they do intend to return for 2021, which seems to be a common thing we're seeing amongst a lot of teams here. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate we're not going to end the Canadian markets. We just talked about them for about 15 minutes or so. And uh, it's definitely a a sad result of this, but it was something that, to be fair, was kind of expected. The board was always going to be tough to negotiate. Even if it was open, there was going to be a quarantine period too. So it just wouldn't have been feasible to go 14 days without playing games and then do, what, like a month and a half long road trip and then go back into Canada? It just really wasn't a feasible feasible thing. Yeah, it wasn't feasible. It's better to, you know, get let those teams find other ways. Maybe they'll do it all Canada League or something and find other ways to uh, get themselves some revenue for this season. Who knows? Maybe they'll have a couple of, uh, they'll find a couple other stadiums in the province of Quebec and maybe they'll get such great results there from that that they'll be able to find a new market to go into for the Ooh, Frontier yeah. League. Who knows? Maybe that'd Ooh. be something. Look at you thinking ahead. Yeah, you always <laughs> got to be thinking ahead in uh, situations like these. Oh, yeah. All right. With that said, we can now go to the thing we're all waiting on, which is the talk on the Atlantic League. They made their announcement today. Or not today. They made their announcement yesterday that they are intending to play this season. So, yay, Atlantic League Baseball this season. They're gonna yes, we will have Atlantic League Baseball. Thank yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. They're going to play 70 games from mid-July through September. However, there's only going to be Long Island, Southern Maryland, and High Point involved in the league this year. So there's only going to be three teams there, which means we already knew Sugar Land was out, but they're out. York, Lancaster, and arguably the most surprising, Somerset. Each of those teams, though, have come up with different ways to use their stadiums and keep their fan bases and communities engaged and involved. Uh, we'll touch on Somersets just because I know we do have a large uh, Somerset fan base that listens. They're probably the largest fan base out of everyone that listens. If not, they're yep. certainly up there. So we'll touch on them. But everybody else's plans, uh, they're listed in the press release, which is in our show notes. Or you could just go right onto that team's website that you're curious about. Just about every team put up their plan, so you can take a look at that. But uh, yeah, so they're going to just have three teams there, plus the rumored addition of three to five teams that are supposedly coming from the Frontier League. But until the Frontier League makes an announcement one way or the other, we don't know that yet. 
Although it would be very interesting to see that. And, uh, yeah, uh, Lancaster and York, they also are trying to, uh, to keep their War of the Roses going. So they may manage to play a game or a few games against each other just to keep that series alive and keep that kind of rivalry going. But that obviously depends whether or not they can have a sustainable number of fans in the ballpark. Right. And that, that really is the question. And, uh, you know, obviously I talked about it a little bit earlier in the show, Pennsylvania hard, their growth rate still kind of going up a little bit, or if it, even if it's going down, it's not going down quite as precipitously uh, at my last count anyway, as New Jersey and New York were. And um, I think the, the issue there becomes again, how many people can safely be in the ballpark, hopefully quite a few, but we don't know. And clearly with them not playing, that limits the Frontier League options out of some of those Pennsylvania teams in the Frontier League. Yeah, and it's very difficult to, well, there's very, I think it's only just the one. I think it's only Washington. Right. It's which, Washington. Yeah. It's the wild thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I've heard rumors about them individually. They're doing something else, but, uh, I can't really say what that is, but I do, I heard some rumors about something they're up to, but, uh, oh, yeah. they'll, they'll announce that. I imagine when, uh, the Frontier League makes their announcement, it'll be very interesting to see, uh, everything that's been behind the scenes once we get that announcement going. But, uh, you know, it definitely does make things more difficult there. Uh, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting to see how these teams are able to play. I mean, it's not like they pick three teams that are very close together. I mean, you got Long Island, then you got like the middle one in Southern Maryland, and then you got the one that's now the furthest southern one on the East Coast, at least, in High Point. So it's not exactly like it's gonna be easy to pull that here. And I'm gonna be very interested to see how this schedule works out. I mean, 70 games, so it's gonna be 35 and 35. It's. I'm, I'm not sure how they're gonna how they're gonna manage it personally. Yeah, I have no idea how they're gonna manage it with you know even if they're gonna get frontier league teams and how does it work and uh, you know I mean how are you gonna play all those games against six? I mean, we've seen it six teams. You've seen it, but I mean yeah. it's it's you know it's uh, not always the greatest. Um, when you see the same team over and over again, it's not always the best. And how are you gonna manage your fans and you know, I think the the American Association seems to have a little bit more of a cohesive, coherent, structured plan in place that, to me, seems like it could really work very well. I'm I'm not sold on the Atlantic League yet, but they haven't unfurled the whole thing yet. Yeah, I mean, the Atlantic League, just from what they are and how successful they've been, has earned my trust in whatever plan they go with. But at the same time, I am a bit concerned about how everything's going to fit together. Now, we know there are very, 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 very intelligent people and competent people that put together these plans. And 100%. We, we know everything about that. That's not yes. the issue. The issue just is yeah. it's just putting it all together. And the, honestly, for me, it's the travel. If it was just like the two Pennsylvania teams and Somerset and Long Island, I'd be like, okay, I could see that. Even in Southern Maryland, it's just... When it's Southern Maryland, Long Island, and High Point, and even if you did pick the three most likely Frontier League teams to toss in there, it's still, you gotta travel pretty far, and there's hotel stays, and then you gotta keep players isolated, and we've discussed before. You're not dealing with hub cities, you know what I mean? You're not using hub cities, like, uh, you're dealing with a lot of travel, like you're saying, and I just think there's a lot of variables in, in more so, it shouldn't say that I, I like the plan better or it's more well thought out. It's not. It's just that the American Association plan has less variables, I think, to it. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. There, it's a lot more controlled. 
you know, it, it, there's a less risk there. But there, it's something about it that's holding me up here. Now, I'm excited to get baseball. I want to see baseball back. But it's just, I do wonder what happens if you have an outbreak of COVID in a hotel and a whole team's taken out of commission because they can't be out of, you know, out of playing for two weeks. The season's done for that team at that point. Yeah. You know? And if they played while they were infected against another team, do you have to quarantine that team? Do you just test them all immediately? Is, yeah. is testing them all immediately a financially viable thing? Like that's something that's a very, very pressing question here. So I'm plus how quickly can you get those results back and how accurate are those results? If you get them back in 20 minutes, but they have a 20% success rate, well, then they're not worth anything. If it takes five days to get the results back, well, then that's just about as good as not testing them to begin with. So it's just a lot of, there's a lot of issues there that I see with it. And at least with, like you said, the American Association, these are in areas that really haven't had outbreaks. And if they have, they've been fairly well contained. It's pretty minor. Uh, You're keeping them all in just mainly hub cities where it's all a pretty controlled environment. With this, it seems just like shortened season, business as usual, fewer teams, and we'll just go with uh, health guidelines. So uh, Right. And, and, you know, obviously that could work. Maybe we're at a point where that could work. But I think the issue is the, the infection rate across the country. Now, certainly in New Jersey and New York and Maryland, even, uh, you know, the, some of these states, they're going down. Right. And so there's a couple of states where it's still going down. But like North Carolina, from my last look, was going up. Um, so, I mean, I think it's going to be hard to travel to these places where, you know, the outbreaks are contained in one spot or I don't know about contained, but the outbreak seems to be lesser. The, the rate of infection seems to be lesser in one spot than it is in another. And there's so many little things that go into this that, you know, I think it's going to be, as I've said, Anything you do is going to be challenging in 2020. That's why part of the reason why I kind of, you know, after the first couple of weeks of this, I really didn't think we'd get baseball at all. Uh, so I'm happy at the prospect of it. But I do still have some questions, and I'm sure the Atlantic League has, you know, put all their resources in it. And they are, you know, really a good, uh, you know, great team, great staff of workers there that will put a lot of effort into figuring out some of these logistical concerns. But I do think that the American Association, like you said, it's a little bit more of a controlled space. You know, it feels like it's a little bit more controlled than the Atlantic League's model, which hopefully will work out. Um but, you know, it's again, well, it, the only way to do it is remains to be seen. But I do think that, you know, like you're saying, there's a legitimate concern that if one team gets it and they're traveling, who do they come in contact with when they were traveling? And then what happens if two teams get it, you know, when they're playing each other and then the other team travels to go to another team before they can figure it out? And then all of a sudden, you know, a lot of different teams can be infected very, very quickly um, exactly. if there's that much travel. Exactly. There's just so much of a chance for a spider web. And like you said, I hope it works out. And, you know, I have confidence in them that they wouldn't have done this unless they have information that says it, there's a high likelihood it will work out. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it goes. And like I said, I'm, I hope it works out. I'm happy to have, you know, as much baseball as we can. But uh, yeah. I just think there's an awful lot of risk in this, at least from an outsider's perspective. So uh, with that much said, we'll just go to the last real thing from the Atlantic League this week, which is we have the third manager of the Sugarland League, which is Major League 
All-Star, or former Major League All-Star, World Series champion, and college baseball Hall of Famer Greg Swindle will now be the third manager of that Sugarland team. He also coached at the University of Texas for their baseball program for quite some time. He, he may even still be coaching there currently. And yeah. he's, uh, you know, well-known in the college ranks, well-known in Texas. So another great name to get. So they have Pete and Cognelia, the Clemens father-son duo, and now Greg Swindle. So, I mean, yeah. really, who else are they going to pull out? Nolan Ryan? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, they, they did a good job with this. And again, you know, Sugarland, we know a lot of connections. You know, they had obviously Tracy McGrady uh, play for them. Um and of course, they had Roger Clemens play for them. You know, they, they are able to attract big names. They have these connections down there in Texas. And so I think it's something that, you know, is really good for them as they try to branch away a little bit here in the Atlantic League from the Atlantic League uh, to do this own Texas League down there uh, in their ballpark. And what I think was interesting was something you said either last week or the week before, I believe it was last week, um, in regard to, you know, them maybe, you know, starting to sneak away a little bit here i mean hey if they get a lot of big names you know they keep getting these big name managers and you know some guys really want to go play for them and mlb teams really start seeing their value especially as the mlb undergoes some changes in the minor league ranks could be uh could be an opportunity for them to sneak in and obviously they didn't shut down those rumors quite in the same way as you suggested as st paul did so really an interesting uh, situation down there in texas that seems to be developing yeah, no, like you get in the big names, and like you said, I, I personally believe, and there's a lot of people that are kind of in the, uh, I guess, indie ball media community, which I'd like to believe that we were part of starting that, but regardless of whether we were or not, there's a lot of people <laughs> that are, that believe that this is kind of the, the death kneel here, that they are looking at it, which I'm not sure if that's fair or not. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of 50-50 on the idea. I'm at the point where if they were to leave the Atlantic League, I'd be utterly unsurprised if they were to stay. I also would be utterly unsurprised. At this point, both, I believe, are equally as likely. Now, Mm -hmm. granted, whatever happens will happen, but it would be very interesting to see. And if I was in Texas, I I would probably venture out to one of these games or two of these games just to see it because, I mean, it's an impressive lineup they have so far. Obviously, it will okay. depend greatly on the players they have, and uh, I'm curious to know who that uh, fourth manager is. I know I just said Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan. I, I will say this much. I would laugh so hard and so long if the fourth manager is A.J. Hinch. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, uh, Alex Cora or someone like that. I would just, no, I, I would love that so much. I mean, they're right outside of Houston as it is. They are right outside of Houston. It would be it would be a good move for them uh, to do that. And we know the owners of the Skeeters are certainly uh, I mean, know, willing the- to do these type of things that maybe some more um, uh, let's say more more tactful owners, more um, apprehensive owners may not. <laughs> I'll phrase it like this: they're mo- they're willing to have more fun and care less about the fallout for it. I mean, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's, you brought that's, in Ro- that's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like they brought in Roger Clemens, which is a fairly divisive guy, a mixture because he threw up bad at Mike Piazza and also because, you know, uh, he was taking what was it, steroids or HGH or something like that, too. Something like that, yeah. One, one of them. Yeah, and that's going to keep him out of the hole. So, yep. you know, I mean, he's a divisive guy. You bring him in to pitch for you and then to manage and to do various other things. Obviously, that's a lot more different from AJ Hinch, but I gotta be honest with you, I don't think he's, there's one market 
where he still has a good name, it's Houston. I mean, he won your World Series. Now, granted, you know, that was because of a trash can and uh, sending up signals and whatnot. But but he still won you the World Series. And as far as Major League Baseball is concerned, it's still legitimate. So, yeah, you know, I mean, again, you know, that whole thing is certainly, uh, you know, something that the MLB has dealt with. And thankfully, not something that has kind of trickled down into indie ball. And we haven't had to deal with that too much. Um, those type of certainly anything to that magnitude. So. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, uh, you know, it'd be fun to bring him in. And I think Houston, the, the community down there still would love to see him. I'm sure the Astros fans would uh, still be very, very, uh, you know, uh, most of Astro, most of the Astros fans, I think, would be very appreciative to have him there. Again, it would just be another thing to draw people's ballpark um, during a time when, you know, it'd be. I think it could be difficult to draw fans in Texas, particularly because of how we've seen the numbers go up in the last week or so um so i think it'll be difficult Mm. ultimately to get a lot of fans to these games but uh maybe i could be wrong maybe texas is you know texas everything's bigger in texas you never know so who knows but um you know we'll see what happens yeah but it would be fun if they did something like that I hope they do. I mean, it'd be really fun. But uh, regardless, we'll go to the American Association now. Uh, we'll hold off on the disposal draft for just a second, and we'll talk a little bit about the other news, which is like the first actual baseball news we've had in a very, very long time, uh, at least when I tweeted out and the swindle news came out. But the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks, one of the American Association teams that will be playing this year, have replaced their manager. Jim Bennett is out after one year. Chris Costi is in after being a bench coach for the last two years. Now, the thing that surprises me here is Jim Bennett was very good. He had a good record. He made it to the divisional championship series. He lost in six, no, five games. He lost in five games to the St. Paul Saints, three and two is how that series went down. He was 63 and 37 last year, which is far from a bad record. I mean, he was one of the best in the league. So I'm I was kind of surprised at this. Uh, I'm not really sure why you make this move. I believe I also read, and I have uh, the one article here, and I'll try to find the other one to throw into the show notes as well, that said something along the lines of, no, I, I wanted to be on. I didn't resign my position. Uh, they, they relieved me of my job. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of surprised. I'm not really sure why you'd make that call, unless it's a money issue or if it was just a disagree in the direction that the team was going issue. I, I just don't quite get that one. I, I don't get it either, especially at this juncture, right? I mean, you know, you would think if something like that were to have happened, it would be earlier in the off season, or actually in the off season, not during what would technically be the season. So, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's again, interesting. Um, there's probably more to the story than we know. I don't know if it's necessarily, as you alluded to a X's and O's baseball thing, you had a good record. Uh, you know, it's not, nothing uh, to be ashamed of to lose <laughs> to the St. Paul saints. Um, I mean, plus they the went playoff. on to, yeah. And they went on to win the championship too. that. They went on. And, yeah. They went on to win the championship. Obviously one of the best organizations in independent league baseball with a great team last year. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'd be hard pressed to, to, to fire somebody uh, who was in that position. Um, exactly. Obviously maybe there's something going on behind the scenes that we don't know about, but certainly just from a purely X's and O's baseball standpoint, which is all I can go off of, uh, this is a perplexing decision. Yeah, I just don't get that one. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like you said, on the field, the results speak for themselves, and 
I just, I don't understand why you'd make that move. Now, with that said, though, and Gastonia coming in next year, uh, they're starting to shape up. They have a lot of good options to pick from as their next manager. Obviously, there's a bunch of guys oh, yeah. that are in the Frontier League, in the American Association, that maybe they'd be willing to jump over to manage in North Carolina. Brand new ballpark, very nice setup, something that will be similar to High Point. Uh, now, obviously, High Point put together one of the best you know, staffs possible. Uh, you know, Frank Viola, Jamie Keith, Billy Horn, that's pretty good right there. Um, but, but I honestly, I'd be interested to see who they go with. I mean, Jim Bennett seems like a very strong candidate for that position. Good success. Yep. The level of competition isn't terribly dissimilar. As long as they can adapt to the rule changes, I don't see why you wouldn't take that job. Uh, Steve Brook is another guy where I'm very curious to see if he's willing to go from being the pitching coach in Gateway and the managing in, say, Gastonia. I think he's a solid option there, too. He had a very good record with River City, obviously. Uh, they disbanded because of a lease disagreement, and then he wound up now being a uh, pitching coach. But yeah. it would be very interesting to see if he's willing to leave that St. Louis area and go over to North Carolina and be a manager there. It's just I'm curious to see what will happen there. So uh, something to keep the keep the eyes on there. So uh, with yeah, that, no doubt. Yep. So with all that said, uh, we'll go to the last real major thing of the day, which is just the disposal draft that the American Association held. Uh, it was held, I believe, Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't recall the exact date, but I will say. I was a little bit surprised that you didn't see a Rick Teasley, you didn't see a Nate Gherkin, you didn't see a Liam O'Sullivan taken. A lot yeah. of this I, th- I heard was mainly due to salary disputes, just money-wise, that some guys would be better off just not playing this year and then playing next year. It would benefit them more. So mm-hmm. I think that's a large part of it. Although I will say some of the picks have already been released from teams. If you check our Instagram feed, you can see who was and wasn't released or just go to the team transaction pages. You'll see that too. I do yep. like Chase Simpson going number one. I'm surprised John uh, Nestor went all the way last to Winnipeg, but there yeah. there was still some there were some good picks there, and it's still very interesting to see. And I find it very funny that uh, Ale uh, Lago, I believe it is, he mm-hmm. went second overall. He goes back to Sioux to Sioux Falls. It's Sioux Falls. He was a canary for a very long time. Goes to Claiborne and he still can't get out of Sioux Falls because the one year he leaves, you know, it's a pandemic year. So it would be very interesting to see. And also, I'm glad to see now with all of these plans coming together that most of my top 10 is completely worthless. So that's getting tossed out the window. And yet again, the AP style indie ball ranking will have to wait another year. Yes, unfortunately, it will because man, we we I mean, we had some good lists. Though. Those were to me two sh- pretty strong lists. I think if if things would have worked out, I think we would have wound up having some some pretty good lists there. Um, maybe with the exception of Southern Maryland on mine, I think that might have been. I was that was one I was already regretting. Um, <laughs> but uh, they get me every year. But uh, you know, I think it's uh you know again i think it was a really interesting thing to see this disposal draft like you said there's a lot of guys who didn't get drafted because they simply said they just wouldn't sign contracts or you know and you've seen guys released because they just could make more money if they say i won't sign with you um so i think there's a lot of that going on right now and i think it's a difficult this is a diff- another difficult situation to kind of parse out but i do think that it, you know obviously there were some good guys drafted teams will benefit from this and obviously it's better to have some guys get drafted and be playing than everybody on these teams wind up not playing so i certainly think that's a, a good thing 
Exactly. I mean, there's not much else you could say. We could go through and grade each of these, but to be quite honest, I don't think either of us are terribly well-versed in the American Association, so it wouldn't really do much justice to the players, and nope. also it really doesn't matter until they sign. Uh, at the end of the yep, day, that's just straight up. Exactly. Yeah. It was different when New Britain went ahead and had their disposal draft. We kind of knew those players. We knew the league. We knew everything about that. But yep. uh, this is a bit different from there. And uh, who knows, maybe next week, if it's a, another tough news week, if we don't get any sort of firm confirmation, although I do expect to get uh, a decent amount of news now that we got the ball rolling again. Uh, who yes. knows, if we ever hit a rut, maybe we'll go back and do a disposal draft of the American Association. We still have the Ottawa one, as well as the... Uh, New Britain one that we could always go back to the well on. So who knows? Yeah. Maybe we'll hit a run in, in September. We'll we'll do three disposal drafts or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, so with that, I think we're just about done for today. We'll toss our plugs in and then get out of here. So if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at IndieBallPod. Uh, we retweet a lot of good articles. We post a lot of stuff there. Uh, it's definitely worth the follow, in my opinion, at least. Uh, if you want to follow us on Instagram, that's probably actually the best place to do so. Uh, transactions get posted there. News gets posted there. When the show goes up, we post the link in our bio as well as on every social media platform. But you can follow us on uh, on social on uh, Instagram at Indie Ball Report and Indie Ball Report James. Those are the two main ones to follow on Instagram. Uh, you can also find all the articles, all the show notes, all the episodes, uh, just about everything under the sun on the website IndieBallReport.com and also our YouTube channel Indie Ball Report Podcast on YouTube for uh, all the YouTube videos there. Uh, with that said, do you have anything else left to add? Uh, again, you know, just thank you to all of our healthcare workers, everybody who's going through this, everybody who's working through these reopenings, um, the government officials that are trying their best to figure this all out. And then obviously, um, just a shout out to both the American Association and the Atlantic League for trying to start, starting to get the ball rolling on playing some baseball. I know fans are really appreciative of them putting the time and effort into creating these plans um, and hopefully we'll be able to see some baseball uh, very soon. Uh, echo all of that. I'll just toss in uh, happy summer solstice and happy Father's Day. And so, oh, yes, uh, happy Father's Day. Yeah. <laughs> well, really, summer solstice, that's the important one. That's true, that's the important one. Forget all the fathers, you know. It's officially, <laughs> and now it's officially summer, summer solstice. I mean, that, that's just yeah, how it is go. now. Uh, so with, <laughs> with that said, nothing else left to add. Uh, don't forget to play ball.